messianic future era where peace will come. In other words, no more war, war making, or suffering will take place. So you can read the prophets like Isaiah, uh, where he prophesies the Prince of Peace will come. Or Jeremiah, there's multiple prophets that kind of predict a future and a time and a coming where one day this messianic figure, figure or this kingly figure will come and set up some form of peace. And then you move into the Ketuvim, which is known as the wisdom literature. This is like Proverbs and Psalms and so on and so forth. And throughout this ancient historic uh, scriptures, uh, these oftentimes entertain this notion of inner peace throughout Judaism in the form of prayer, obedience to Yahweh, organizing your house, self-discipline, some of these other things like this. So in other words, this, the, the whole aim of the Tanakh or the Jewish or the Hebrew scriptures is this, this proposal that peace is coming and peace is, is at some point available. And yet, if you're familiar with the Hebrew scriptures within Judaism, you realize at the end of the day, it ends the story in the book of Malachi, and the whole peace project is unresolved. There's no conclusion. There's, there's no messian, Messiah to point to and say, yes, the Messiah has come. Now, again, some of you are automatically already thinking, well, what about the New Testament? When Jesus comes, you're getting ahead of yourself and ahead of myself. And we would get there, and we will get there. But the point that I would make, this is within the major monotheistic religion of Judaism, that peace is proposed, peace is promised, but it's never ultimately fulfilled. So within, for example, like Hinduism, moving on to some of the other major world religions and uh, ideologies and philosophies. So within Hinduism and Buddhism, very similar proposals, identification of what's wrong within the world, where does chaos come from, and much of what they would describe within this is that peace comes through spiritual processes, or principles, I should say, uh, peace via spiritual practices, like self-discipline, self-realization, mindfulness, acting in a form of compassion, and all of these are attempts to somehow bring about peace within yourself, but also then on a horizontal level with your neighbor. Oftentimes, uh, what's small print is this is motivated by karma. <laughs> the idea, if you don't promote this, be careful because there might come a time where everything that you fail to deliver to other people or that you do bring to other people by way of chaos will revisit you in another future life through various forms of reincarnation at some point down the road. So be careful. In other words, that can oftentimes become a very strong motivator and oftentimes a means of fear. How do I break the cycle of karma? But I'm just simply pointing out to you that these two great religions, uh, great in terms of like massive, big, impactful, like Hinduism and Buddhism, have also offered their ideas and their philosophy to a history of peace theory. Islam also takes the subject of peace and thinks carefully and critically through it. So, for example, for them, they would suggest that peace comes through or is via submission to Allah. So as human beings submit to Allah, peace will then become part of the practices. And Sharia law, in other words, following all the teachings of uh, Islam, uh, Muhammad the prophet, then you will have peace in society. Which, by the way, most of you, if you're familiar with uh, the Islamic mindset, it is deeply tethered and deeply connected to a political mindset. In other words, you can't really separate the religion of Islam from the politic of Islam. They go hand in hand. Um, Hardline, hardcore uh, Muslims will, will tell you this very clearly, that the aim or the goal of Islam is to overtake various other forms of government to impose some form of worship of Allah, because when that happens, then peace will ultimately come. And it's oftentimes led to various forms of war that we see. And Christianity has its own issues. We'll get to that in just a second here. But I want to move on now to some major uh, thinkers and philosophers on this. 
uh, particularly the writer and politician, a guy by the name of Thomas Hobbes. He lived around the 1600s. His motivation ultimately was to avoid civil war. He had a very uh, he had a lot to say on this particular subject, but he would say that peace ultimately comes through a very strong state. He identified that when a culture or a community does not have a strong state, meaning a strong nationalistic or centralized government, you have chaos and anarchy. People running rampant in the streets and people looting and people doing bad stuff to other human beings. And so in other words, one of the greatest deterrents to that type of anarchy in a general state-like condition is to have a very strong, uh, top-heavy type of form of government that can basically push against and work as a deterrence against this very form of chaos. Moving on to uh, John Locke, he's probably the most influential contributor to a philosophy of peace. He would say something to this uh, idea. And again, I'm, by the way, if you've ever studied any of this type of stuff, you, you know I'm just barely scratching the surface on a lot of this, so I'm just trying to keep all this stuff down from a six-hour sermon to, um, you know, a half an hour, 40 minutes or so, something like that. So you're welcome. Again, um, but the point that I would make is talking about John Locke, one of the most influential uh, contributors to a philosophy of peace. He would basically say something along the lines that peace comes through religious tolerance. He identified the various forms of religious intolerance in his day. You had various factions within various forms of religion, particularly Christianity, that were waging war against one another, and there was bloodshed as a result of that. And, and again, this was, this was not Christianity's best moment to really shine brightly, and so you had political thinkers like this that were trying to make sense. How do we create a society where chaos is eliminated and peace is there? And one of the things that he suggested was religious tolerance. Moving on forward a little bit to, say, Marx and Engels, uh, you have the formation of the theory and the system of communism, which many have described as really nothing more than a, or various, in, in various ways, thinking of it as a non-theistic religion. In other words, it is a religious form or framework that basically eliminates the need for God. And as a result of that, communism and Marx and Engels, they would basically contribute their idea to the formation of peace by way of looking at that peace comes through the elimination of inequality, a classless society. So in other words, you had rich people, poor people, and everyone in between waging war against each other. And so how do, you, how do you help bring peace in a chaotic society where the rich people are taking advantage of the poor people and the poor people are waging war against the rich people, everybody hates each other, and you have this radical rift within culture and society at large. It sounds very unfamiliar to our culture in which we live in today, I know, but the point that I make is that uh, these were questions that all sorts of people like this were trying to navigate and make sense of. So with that being said, what we would see with this is not only would he describe peace through the elimination of inequality, a classless society, just distribution of resources, no class warfare, no international wars, and he would, they would posit that the reason why there was wars taking place was because of um, capitalistic imperialism. In other words, people getting really rich and saying, you've got resources, your country's got resources that we want, so we're going to go uh, pillage and steal and take, no matter what form or facet, we're going to grab for ourselves things that you have, and as a result of that, that nation is going to revolt and resist against that, and you'll have uh, warfare. So within this construct, you have this idea that historians oftentimes assert, this is another like big thing you have to take into consideration, that historians would assert that communist societies have been, for the most part, the most violent and the most genocidal in human history. 
Although some would push back and say that's not true because you have places like North Korea and China and Russia, the Soviet Union, which were not very clearly following the tenets of Marx and Engels. But the point of the matter is this. Nonetheless, these were basically framed around various ideas and constructs that at its very core was an attempt to rid chaos and bring about peace. You guys doing okay? All right. No one's fallen asleep yet? Good. All right, let's jump in. Uh, if you guys are familiar with critical theory or what's commonly known as the Frankfurt School of Thinkers, these are like Horkheimer, Adorno, Marcuse, Fromm, Benjamin. Uh, and, and these guys, Walter Benjamin, these were thinkers during around Weimar Republic era, 19, early 1900s, 1930s and whatnot. And they were basically looking at communism and how it failed. And they were looking at it and saying, how do we take the tenets of, the core tenets of communism and imp implement those into a future and a, and a culture so that we can actually thrive as a culture? Now, most of these guys, most people don't really know this, but all of these thinkers, with the exception of maybe one of them, all of them were actually Jews that lived or had families that lived throughout Europe. And they were part of the pogroms. They were horribly, horribly mistreated. But these guys were thinkers. They were elites. They, they were very, very smart people that were just around the region of Berlin and Germany uh, prior to World War II. And they were sensing some form of injustice that was brewing just beneath the level throughout Europe, Russia, Soviet Russia, and whatnot. And they were trying to figure out how do we create a society that does not succumb to chaos, and so they formed what's commonly known as critical theory. And if you're familiar with critical race theory, critical race theory comes from critical theory. And all of it comes back upstream to these particular thinkers that really sought to contribute. So what they would say is that peace really comes through political order and equality. They were looking at society at large and saying that one of the reasons why there's this pure chaos, why some people are being persecuted, and why Jewish minorities are being round up and killed and within these pograms, and there's so much violence and hatred and venom spewed against various minority groups was because of this level of inequality that they would look at, they would frame a worldview that would basically go something like this. Oppressed people acquire critical awareness. There's a lot of words here. Crit oppressed people acquire critical awareness of their condition, and then they engage in the struggle for liberation. In other words, the big idea is that they formed a framework that says, if you can look at the world through the oppressed people and the non-oppressed, what you will then begin to realize that the oppressed need to rise up, challenge the power structures that are in place, push against them, deconstruct them, and then in their place, take their rightful place at the table and assert their freedom. It's kind of a fascinating thing. In a lot of ways, this is what we've seen actually playing out. So if you're trying to figure out, this sounds awfully similar to like society at large. It is, because even though this originated in the 1920s, it, did not, it made its way from kind of the elite uh, learning centers of the world all the way down into mainstream, you know, 100 years later. And here we are literally living in the wake of critical theory in a very, very vast and broad way, shape, and form. And they would oftentimes view this idea that peace ultimately comes as what they would use a phrase counter-hegemonic. In other words, a way to combat the hegemonic power structures that are in place. So when, in 2020, you saw the movement to defund the police. This is exactly what this would have come out of. It's the idea of saying police are the problem. They are the oppressors. If you can deconstruct the police structures, remove these structures that are in place, and then you can bring about some form of peace. Peace will invade those areas of chaos. But 
Again, here we are three years later after this, and we realize it was a failed vision. It did not work. It cannot work for various reasons, which I will get to in just a moment here. So this is just another one of the ideas or options that are there on the menu of many great, brilliant, smart thinkers way beyond my pay scale that have been able to contribute their ideas and their solutions to the subject of chaos and peace in our world. And yes, all this is going somewhere. Lastly, uh, before we jump into a couple other last ones, um, there's another one that's commonly known as, where, oh, here we go. Uh, I just have written down here in my notes, Eros and Peace. And this is basically from, from Freud, Marcuse, uh, William Reich, Wilhelm Reich. And they basically viewed it this way, that peace comes through sexual revolution. This is some kind of interesting, for, but just follow me out here. So within this, they basically identified that war and unjust social conditions or organization are oftentimes the result of repressed sexual desires. You may not have known this, but the real issues in culture at large today are libido, out of control. You have repressed sexual desires that if you can somehow take those sexual desires and channel them so that they can actually be fulfilled and satisfied, then peace would ultimately come as a result of that. In other words, chaos will be overcome. Peace will ultimately begin to be unleashed. So for example, there was a slogan in the 1960s called make love, not war. This is literally the idea here. Make love, not war. It's a concept that basically identifies that the way that peace comes about within society and culture at large, is by just giving into whatever sexual temptations or desires you had, of course, within a consensual manner. But even though that might be the main rule of this entire thing is consensuality, we also realize that consensuality is not always the case. And the sexual revolution, even though it has won the day in which we live in, we are living in a post-sexual revolution world where any form of sexual sexuality, sexual desires can be lived into and participated in, as long as it's with a consenting adult, no matter how many consenting adults there are, the big idea is that this will promise peace. But the question is, let's put it under the microscope. Does it really bring peace? Does it really fulfill on its dream and its vision? Or does it just simply complicate matters and create weird, strange, jealous love triangles that oftentimes lead to death and pain and hurt? Uh, I think one of the greatest examples of this, which to me, I'm happy to get to him, is MLK. All right. Um, I think in a lot of ways, he expresses peace in a profoundly beautiful way. One, I think still today, as, as a culture at large, we, we look at Martin Luther King Jr. with, with a sense of like, wow, this is, this is absolutely beautiful. What he did, what he accomplished is, is incredible. Now, again, he's a very complicated figure, which I'm not going to get into any of that, but I just want to point out the main thing that he basically viewed that peace comes through loving one's enemies. These are the main tenets that he upheld. Peace through loving one's enemies. Peace through altruism. Peace through inner transformation. Peace through overcoming hate, nonviolence, and identifying Evil. These are the main tenets that MLK basically promoted and pushed forth. His way of identifying chaos in the various forms of racism and uh, in inequalities and injustices that are happening at culture at large, his address to that was to say, we're not going to turn away from that. We're going to call a spade a spade and identify it for what it is. But the way that we're going to come against that is not by burning down buildings, not by looting our enemies, not by hating our enemies, not by whipping out guns and shooting our enemies, but by way of loving one's enemies, inner transformation, overcoming hate, and identifying evil. 
So as he stepped into this, we, we can look at the legacy of that still to this day, and we're like, this is amazing, like what he did. And why is this so beautiful? And one simple reason for that is because everything he stood for literally was the embodiment of Jesus. It was literally the embodiment of Jesus. Again, like I said, he wasn't perfect, and he didn't, his moral life is question, but I don't want to go down that pathway at all. I just really want to focus on the fact of, of what he taught and where he borrowed or where he got what he taught. And it literally comes from Jesus. So that leads me to the subject of Christianity. That Christianity really at its core has as its very center this idea that peace is or peace is available through what we would describe as the Prince of Peace. Peace is available. Again, like I said, I return back to what I started this whole entire thing with, is that this bold and audacious claim that Christianity makes is that peace is available. It's, it's a potentiality for your life. You don't have to live in a state of ongoing chaos, that there is a peacemaker that has come to bring peace in this world, even though there are many who have attempted to try to identify various societal and personal and cultural and political problems and economic problems in our world. Again, when you don't identify the problems at its deepest state, you can't apply a proper solution that's as extensive as it needs to be. So what we see is that Jesus comes in. Again, we also realize that Christians have not always embodied this well. And someone would have suggested that the reason why Christians have not always embodied this practice of Jesus is because there oftentimes has been a, a strong implication on um, proselytizing, bringing people into the fold, which some sociologists would argue the reason why Christians, Christians basically become very competitive. They're out to try to like build their brand. And again, we know that that's true. And as a result of that, Christians can sometimes become dubious and not very properly representing the life of Jesus, and we've seen things of that nature happen from the very beginning of the church. Um, but the point that I'd make is this. One of the most important things that I would say that Christianity does offer is this baked-in or built-in self-corrective mechanism. It, in other words, it comes in the form of this call or invitation to repentance. We are regularly called to repent, to turn from our sin, turn from our wayward hearts, turn from our ambitions that are oftentimes not in alignment with the heart and mind of Jesus, to turn from our sin and turn to this loving God. That's, that's baked into the very fabric of what Christianity has to offer over and over again. And what we see as a result of that, forgiveness and reconciliation are these dominant themes that come out. Um, the Christian vision has always had incredible thinkers that have also contributed their own ideas to the subject of peace and peacemaking. For example, you have St. Augustine in the 350s, somewhere on there, that wrote on the subject of peace and chaos as well. Thomas Aquinas, one of the greatest thinkers of, of the entire Christian church, has oftentimes contributed his thoughts and thinking with regard to the subject of peace and peacemaking. And then you have Erasmus that also spoke a lot about the subject of peace as well during the time of Martin Luther. And I want to finish on this whole subject of what is Jesus's vision for peace? Because Jesus himself also had a vision for peace and how to accomplish that and how to get there. So with that, I want to take a look at John chapter 1, verse 14. You guys doing okay? John chapter 1, verse 14. I want to finish on this little segment in which I read earlier. Again, it says, The word became flesh, dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And again, we know that this is part of the major overarching story that, that John tells us his little version of it. Matthew tells us his version. Mark, Luke, they tell us their version of it. This is John's version of this story, telling us how this subject of peace has entered into our world through the person of Jesus. And as I 
was thinking about this, that God's form of peace is very different, and I think you would all agree, very different than the various forms of peace that we saw from Locke all the way to Marcuse, all the way to, you know, any other brilliant, bright thinker within our world today. Very different. Very different. And there's a reason for that, I think, because first and foremost, God has a very, very clear uh, pulse on the problem that's keeping human beings separated from peace. It, it, for God, it's not just simply uh, societal issues that need to be taken care of. God looks at this and realizes that if you can get society perfect, perfect, where healthcare for everybody, everybody has the same amount of money, everybody has a, a, a shelter over their head, everybody has food, everybody's happy, will there be peace? And I think God will look at it and say, no, Adam and Eve. Remember, they started out in the garden. They started out in a paradise. Things didn't go well in paradise. You know, Milton wrote about this. The whole subject of paradise can be lost. So the subject that I want us to really kind of consider and think about, that Jesus does put his finger upon the issue that withholds peace in our world, but then invites us into receiving this peace. So as I think about the words of Jesus, and I'll summarize with these final three things, that peace in Jesus' mind, I think, comes through, number one, a king who dwells among his people. A king who dwells among his people. Listen to what he says again. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. The glory as of the only son of God. As I think about this, true lasting peace comes not through the absence of God, but the presence of God. And I think this is the number one problem that society is facing today. We want an absence of God. The Enlightenment came around. A lot of incredibly brilliant thinkers came onto the world scene. We're still living in sort of the aftermath or the reality of Enlightenment thinkers. But what the Enlightenment thinkers did is as they came onto the scene, they began to think carefully and critically about the world in which they live in and the problems that they face in the world. They were very deeply content to kick God upstairs and let him stay upstairs. Except for when the Black Plague comes, and we'll calm down to give us a little bit of help, a boost through the problems and the challenges, or if a tsunami takes place, let's summon him. If something horrible and tragic takes place, let's have the priest enchant and bring him down so that we can then find solutions and then push him back upstairs. But the real aim of Christianity is to say that is not the solution that we need. The solution we need is a God who is present here now. A God who is filled with justice and righteousness, who can arbitrate, who can call the spade a spade, who can identify what's wrong. We need this God, a God, even a God who is, is just and that could have wrath and anger against things that are evil and wicked. We need this God. And the story of Christmas is that this God came near in the person of Jesus. He's present. He's here with us. He brings order and justice and righteousness. He settles disputes. We need truth beyond ourselves that's going to set us right. And again, the story of human beings is we either want to kick God away where we don't have to think about him or we want to remove God completely. But still we say, I want peace. But what we hear over and over again is we cannot have peace apart from the Prince of Peace. It's like saying we want the kingdom, but we don't want the king. 
God knows that the way that you and I are wired is that if we have the kingdom without the king, you and I make really bad monarchs <laughs> on our own. We misjudge. We overrule our hand of power, our, our hand of authority. I mean, look, if you're a parent, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You know what it's like to like discipline your kid more than really what you should have disciplined your kid. I can't tell you how many times I've had the follow up with my daughter and sit down on the edge of her bed and be like, look, dad's so sorry. I shouldn't talk to you the way that I did. That was wrong. I overplayed my dad role and I made you cry and I made you feel small. That's not dad's job. Dad failed and I'm sorry for that. I can't even rule my own household well or as the way that I want to. How can I live my life apart from this God? And this is the hope of Christmas, is that God has come into this world to set this world right. Second thing, let me, let me also quote Psalm 97. Again, if you're writing notes, you can write this down. Psalm 97 says this, The Lord reigns. Let the earth be glad. Let distant shores rejoice. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Uh, in this psalm, we're told that the, the, the foundations of who God is and of his throne is righteousness and justice. Guys, let me ask you this. Do you want a world that's filled with righteousness and justice? You should. Because what happens if there's not? You have chaos. And you have everybody doing what is right in their own eyes. And that just adds more destruction and ruin and violence and savagery. What we need is a unified, unifying God presence that comes in this world, Jesus, to set things right, to bring his justice and righteousness to bear. Secondly, we see that peace comes through grace. Listen to what he says again. He says, the word became flesh, dwelt among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the only son of the father, full of grace and truth. So number one, we recognize that this peace comes as a gift from God. Paul the apostle would say this in Philippians chapter four. May the peace of God, which passes understanding, guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. It's a gift from God. Jesus would say this in John chapter 14, verse 27. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Guys, it's a gift. We don't deserve it. We didn't merit it. We didn't earn it. In fact, if anything, we have contributed to the chaos in this world. And yet Jesus comes on our behalf and says, I give you my peace. I give it to you. And then lastly, we see that peace comes through truth. Not just simply facts and data, but the proper application of wisdom. This is ultimately embodied in Jesus. And we oftentimes, you know, if you've ever been in a dispute with somebody, Let's say, for example, a spouse, and you have some sort of a rift or some sort of issue that arises, you know that you cannot bring resolution in that relationship or that context unless both parties are able to very clearly identify the truth of what happened. I mean, if you're like sweeping under the rug, you're like, it wasn't that bad. I didn't raise my voice that loud. I didn't like, you know, swell in my temper that bad. Come on, you're just like overemphasizing this. What you're doing is you're minimalizing her feelings, or I'm just, I don't know why I'm like embodying the male and female, but you get the idea, probably because I've, I've been down this path a lot. But the point that I would make is, is that within this context, what we see is that you cannot have resolution or peace until there's truth that gets spoken. And when truth begins to be spoken and dealt with, now you have means of being able to identify the problem that will then lead to the proper solutions. And this is exactly what we see perfectly betrayed or portrayed within the life of Jesus. And let me end on this particular quote. C.S. Lewis would say something like this, and I think it's a beautiful way of summarizing everything. He says, God cannot give us peace 
apart from himself because it's not there. So the point that I would make in summary is that peace is something that's available to each one of us, but it's the type of peace that we have to think about. What peace will you settle for? We just read a lot of options. There's a lot of options of peace. There is no shortage of solutions for peace in our world today. They're wholesale. They're everywhere. They're from brilliant thinkers, brilliant minds. Or you also have the peace that Jesus offers. But the peace that Jesus offers does involve an interaction with this God who made you. It involves a reckoning that I may have and I have violated his rule and reign in this world. I have tried to overthrow him. And yet he still presses in and invites me to surrender and to love him. This is the God that we have. He says, put down your white, put, wage your white flag, put down your arms and turn to me and I will bring to you this peace that's available. So all of us have this option, this opportunity right now to really kind of think about where are those areas of chaos in your life? Where do you need to invite this king, this prince of peace in to bring his wholeness and healing into those spaces and areas? I want to invite us all to stand right now. We're going to close out. We're going to just finish with a song of worship. And I'm going to pray over us as these guys are getting ready to lead us in a final song. And then we will exit back into the world to basically be agents of peace that God invites us to. But let me pray for all us right now. And there's various areas in our lives right now where maybe you need peace. So Jesus, right now, we turn our hearts to you. We recognize, God, that there are, in some cases, many, many areas where there's just chaos, loose ends, brokenness, attempts to try to fix things on our own. And yet we keep coming up short and empty or superficial. And so, God, we come to you right now, and we just ask you that you would take our hearts, no matter how fragile or frail or broken they might be, and bring wholeness. So we look to you right now, our king. Come rule, come reign, come establish your rightful place within our hearts, in this church, in this community, in this state, in our nation. Our greatest hope, Jesus, is that you are king over all things.